you do, open them up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to go look at verses 1 through 11. And it is the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry refers to the religious day known as Palm Sunday. It occurred one week before the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Sunday prior to his Friday crucifixion. The most important life ever lived was that of Jesus Christ. And the most important part of that life was the historic week that ended it. The week started out with Jesus entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it involved a second cleansing of the temple, the final teaching, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. And it ended with Jesus' resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday, eight earth-shattering days later. And this final week is so important that the gospel, the gospels, give a lopsided amount of space to it. In other words, a, a disproportionate amount of time speaking of Jesus' triumphal entry. Jesus lived for 33 years. His earthly ministry was three of those years. But a large portion, all right, a large portion of the Gospels are given over to the events of just the, the last eight days. In all four Gospels together, there are 89 chapters, but 29 and a half, or one-third of those chapters uh, given, they give an, an account of what happened between the triumphal entry and Jesus' resurrection. And the reason for it is because these events, they are, they're the grand finale, not only of Jesus' life, but of all history. And they were planned from before the foundation of the world. And our salvation from sin and wrath depends upon them. So this climactic week starts with what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And each of the Gospels records this event. And the first significant detail that they record is that Jesus arranged what was to happen. In other words, this wasn't just a case of some impulsive, spur-of-the-moment frenzy of excitement on the part of the people. Even though there was, no, there was obviously some spontaneity to, it, uh, spontaneity to it. To a certain extent, it was something that the Lord Jesus himself carefully planned in order to make a statement. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 21. And it reads, Now when they drew near Jerusalem, that is Jesus and the disciples, and they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Matthew tells us that as Jesus and the disciples were approaching Bethphage, which was a faraway area of Jerusalem, 
he sends, Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead of them to go get a donkey and her colt. Or as verse 2 says, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey there, tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And Jesus says, if anybody says anything to you, you tell them that the Lord needs them and they'll send them with you right away. Look at verse 6. It says, so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. So we see the instant obedience of the disciples. Notice their perfect obedience. Jesus' commands were performed by the disciples without hesitation, without a question, without complaint. And to me, what's significant about it, it, there was... If you want to classify it as a menial task, you know, he sends two guys to go out and get a donkey. You know, and these were disciples. You know, they've been with Jesus. You know, and I, and I think a lot of times we go, well, you know, I, I've, I've been trained for things better than fetching donkeys, Lord, you know. I teach Bible study. I can do this and I can do that. And, you know, and sometimes we look at things that the Lord has us do as as menial you know maybe even degrading but always remember that there's no menial task when it comes to serving god there's nothing menial about serving jesus christ whatever we get to do man it's an honor it is a privilege and like the disciples here we just need to go be obedient obey his commands perform the task without hesitation, without question, and without complaint. But unfortunately, this kind of obedience is lacking way too much in the church today. And the obedience of the church often hinders the forward advancement of the gospel. There's a lot that does not get done because of, again, the lack of, of the desire to serve. The lack of, of, want, of, of servants doing what Jesus you know, has called us to do. The Lord's disciples today don't obey Jesus' commands like they did in those days. Like the church in Corinth, some say, well, we follow Paul. Well, we follow Cephas. Today, it's still the same. Except we follow our perverse likes, dislikes. We follow our whims, our fancies, our opinions, our feelings. And if they interfere with what Jesus wants us to do, well... Jesus, you're out of luck. It would be wonderful if we would all just follow the master himself. And these two obedient disciples, they were never named. We don't know their names. In any of the gospel stories, we don't know who they are. But if you serve the Lord, and I've said this before, always remember that God knows who you are. God knows who serves him and God knows who doesn't serve him. So why did Jesus arrange to enter into Jerusalem the way he did? I mean, he didn't need to ride in on donkeys. He didn't need to ride on anything, period. He'd already walked all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. So this is the only time we hear of Jesus doing anything but walking. But it's obvious that Jesus wanted to make a statement. He was acting like Jeremiah. Remember when Jeremiah was told to go buy a clay jar and then break it in front of the people? It was to symbolize the breaking of the nation. 
Well, Jesus wants to make a statement here as he rides into Jerusalem. The meaning of what Jesus arranged is found in the quote in verse 4. This comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. Look, look at verses 4 and 5. All this, that is everything that's being done here, that Jesus going on the donkeys into Jerusalem, he says, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, is from a section of the book of Zechariah prophesying what was going to happen in Israel in the future. And what it prophesies is the coming of God's king. John's gospel quotes it, but not completely. Plus, it's not uh, emphasized. Matthew is the gospel of the king. You see, Matthew portrays gospel, uh, uh, Jesus as the king. And at this point, where Matthew, show, is shown coming, uh, Matthew shows Jesus coming into, into his capital city, he's coming in as the rightful king of Israel. But what kind of king is this? He's not like a warlike king, you know, a, you know, riding in on this beautiful, white, majestic stallion to gather his armies together. Instead, Jesus comes riding in gentle and riding on a donkey, just like Zechariah says in verse 5 here. In Jesus' day, a donkey wasn't a disgraceful animal. Kings rode donkeys in those days. And yet the donkey did symbolize that Jesus was coming in peace and not for war. And this was to be a gentle, peaceful reign. And this is what Jesus indicated by his action here. And what Matthew emphasized by keeping the word lowly or gentle in the quote from Zechariah. Is Jesus ever going to go to battle? He is. One day he's going to. In Revelation 19, 11, Jesus is described as arriving on a white horse to judge and to make war. And then verse 13 of 19, 11 says his robes are dipped in blood because he will come in, be coming then in judgment. But for now, the king comes in humility. He comes humbly. He comes in peace because his is a peaceable kingdom. Up to this point, Jesus had been keeping his messianic uh, claim a secret just in case there was an untimely attempt to make him king see everything is in God's timing because Jesus wasn't the kind of king people wanted but now it was time to let the people know to let it be known who he is knowing that the time of his passion was at hand so Jesus deliberately brought about, brought about this demonstration Jesus had sent two disciples for the donkeys. And when they arrived, the, don the, the disciples spread their clothes on both the animals and on the road. Now, in that time, putting your clothes on the animal and putting the clothes on the road, spreading them out, like it reads here, uh, with, and with the tree branches, which were the palm branches, it was a common practice by which dignitaries were honored. So they were honoring Jesus as he was riding in to Jerusalem. Jesus sat on the colt, which was probably led by the mother donkey, because, you know, it was a, it was a young animal that, that hadn't been ridden before. The other group, they made their way down the steep descent of Mount Olives, 
in full sight of the city of Jerusalem. And people saw them. They were attracting people as they were going along. And so the crowd gathered. And as the crowd came near, others were in Jerusalem. And they saw what was happening. They went out to the city to join the group that was arriving in verse 9. Notice verse 9. It goes on, then the multitudes who went before and those who followed crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So these people are coming, they're arriving, and the people begin to cry out as we just read in chapter, in verse 9, or now verse 10 and 11. I'm sorry, in verse 9. They began to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. These were just, these were spontaneous praises by the people. And then, and and just, again, there's this this hype, there's excitement going on, the people are crying out. Now, when he says, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Luke adds in his gospel, peace and glory in the highest. And John adds in his gospel, blessed is the king of Israel. So again, these were spontaneous praises. But they weren't, they weren't just random words. They were special words. They weren't thoughtless words. Two of these sentences come from Psalm 118. The first verse, Psalm 118.25, says, Save now, I pray, O Lord. And then in Psalm 118, the second uh, verse, uh, 26, says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in the Psalm 118, the word blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those words are found exactly as we have them in our English versions. Verse 25 is quoted differently. But we can see the connection if we know that the words save us from save us, I pray, O Lord, in the first half of the verse of Psalm 118 are literally save us, save us now, which is the Hebrew word for Hosanna. So this is what the people were shouting when they cried out, Hosanna, the son of David and Hosanna in the highest. The significance of this psalm is that Psalm 118 is the last psalm of the Egyptian Hillel Psalms, which are Psalm 113 through 118. Those are the Egyptian Hillel Psalms. Hillel means praise. And the great Jewish feasts, like the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of the New Moons, and they would be sung by these these songs would be sung by families at the very observance of the at the yearly observance of the Passover. And at Passover, two of the psalms were sung before the meal, and then four songs were sung after the meal. So they were probably the psalms that, sung, uh, that were sung by Jesus and his disciples in the upper room just before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. So Jesus entered Jerusalem during the Passover week, probably at the very same time that thousands of Passover lambs were being brought into the city to be killed later on and eaten as part of the Passover observance. So it's a natural thing then that the lines from Psalm 118 were on the people's minds and in their mouths on this occasion. But did the people understand that Jesus was the Son of God? Though they were praising Him and there was all of this excitement and all this, 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 this going on in the city... Did they know? Did they understand that that Jesus was the Son of God? 
Did they understand that, that he was coming to save them? That he was coming to save his people from their sins? They didn't. They didn't know. Except for a few. Like Mary of Bethany. Who seemed to have understood that Jesus was about to die. But the thing is, whether the crowds understood it or not, these verses describe what Jesus was doing and what he was about to do. And he had come only, he had come in the name of the Lord. And he came to do the will of his Father in heaven. And what he had been sent to do was to save his people from their sins. Just as it reads in the very beginning of Matthew chapter 1. Where it says, she will bring forth the son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1 21. That's why he came to save us from sins, our sins. Matthew ends his story of the triumphal entry by telling us that when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was moved. Let's look at verses. Let's read now verses um, uh, 10 through 11. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved and they were saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. So again, Matthew ends his story about the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem by saying, hey, all the city was moved. They were stirred. There was excitement. There was a stirring going on. The whole city was just, it was just vibrant. Jesus had been there before, but not like this. He had never seen such an enthusiastic crowd surrounding him with cheers and praises. You know, quiet citizens, you know, who had left their, who had not left their homes, they marveled at the crowd. Great numbers had been moved by some uncontrollable urge to go out and to see what was going on, to see what this thing, this, this stirring was all about, this, this guy named Jesus. And when he came into Jerusalem, even greater crowds were drawn in. All the city was moved. So Jesus was creating quite a stir. And Jesus always does. Whether it's a negative one or a positive one. You see, there is nothing that can move mankind like the coming of Jesus. Just like it was 30 years earlier, when the three wise men came to ask about Jesus, they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They heard about it. It stirred them up. They came from far away looking for him. But here in Jerusalem, the crowd that stirred up here, they're asking now here, they're asking, who is this? You know, it's a lot of times you see a lot of commotion in the street. Maybe there's, you know, a parade or something's going on. Hey, what's going on over here? What's this all about? Well, that's what was happening in Jerusalem. You know, there's this man riding in on a donkey and everybody's, you know, laying their clothes before him and on the donkey and palms and, and just, who is this? That he's getting all this recognition and all of this praise. It may have been a, a meaningless curiosity to some. Just figure, hey, you know what? I heard the noise. I thought I'd go out and look. Just curious as to what's happening. For others, it might have been just a short-lived interest. But it was a lot better than the deadly lack of interest of those who don't care about any of these things. 
Wherever Jesus comes, whenever Jesus comes, he creates a stir and he raises questions. Like here, who is this? And who is this is the right, valuable, personal, and very important question. If you don't know the answer to the question, who is this? Referring to Jesus? Concerning Jesus? Keep asking. Keep asking. Who is this? What's he about? Never stop asking, who is this? Until you know the answer. And the crowd answered in verse 11. Notice again. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. It sure doesn't seem to be a a profound answer. But it's probably more significant than it seems on the surface. We need to remember that the crowd was calling the man who was entering Jerusalem on a donkey the Messiah. Because that's what the shouts of praise meant here. John tells us that they clearly called him the king of Israel. So when the people in the city asked, who is this? They meant, who is this person you are calling the Messiah? You see, the answer identified Jesus as the Messiah. The words, the, the words recorded in Matthew as the crowds answered seem to mean Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee is the messianic son of David, the king of Israel. Now, was their answer significant? Yeah, it was. But it wasn't good enough for a couple of reasons. First, because they were still thinking of of a powerful political ruler. The kind of ruler who could bring together an army and drive out the occupying Romans from the land. The disciples were already thinking along these lines themselves, even after the Lord's resurrection. Remember in Acts chapter 1, 6, the disciples asked the Lord, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? The second reason that this answer was not that significant is that the people were superficial even in their confession of Jesus as the King and Messiah of Israel. And keep in mind that the triumphal entry took place on a Sunday all right, and they're all praising him, Hosanna, save us, praise him, and and they're, you know, come Friday, they're yelling, crucify him. Think about it. By the following Friday, which was the day of Jesus' crucifixion, they would be singing a totally different tune, literally. As they were insisting that the governor, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, crucify him. And they went from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. So who is this Jesus? And that's what we're going to talk about here in the last several minutes in closing. Who is this Jesus? Because this is the time to get your answer to that question right And in case you've never done it before, Matthew has presented Jesus as God's king. And we've seen him rejected by many and delivered, or I should say believed, by only a few. The question is, where do you stand on this issue this morning? On who is this man? 
Is Jesus the king? Is Jesus the son of God? Is Jesus the savior? And have you trusted for uh, Jesus for the salvation of your soul? You know, if people are still dragging their feet about the answer, they need to look at the possibilities. You know, if they're not sure, really sure who he is. There's only three of them. Three possibilities of who Jesus could be. And there's, there's only three of them once we eliminate the one truly impossible idea that Jesus was nothing more than a good man. Whatever you think he might be, he was definitely not just a good man. Why? Because no good man could honestly make the claims that Jesus made. Jesus presented himself as the savior of the human race. Claimed to be God. Is he? If he is, more than a mere man. If he isn't, then at best he's mistaken. So consequently, not good. And at worst, a deceiver. So what, so what are we to do with Jesus' claim? With the cla- all the claims that he made. John Stott wrote this. The claims are there. They do not in themselves constitute uh, evidence of deity. They claim, the, the claims may have been false. But some explanation of them must be found. We can't any longer regard Jesus as simply a great teacher. If he was so grievously mistaken in one of the chief subjects of his teaching, specifically himself, he couldn't be a good teacher. C.S. Lewis wrote something uh, similar. C.S. Lewis said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him for a demon Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any arrogant nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. Thinking of Jesus as just a good teacher is impossible. But what are the alternatives? The quotation from C.S. Lewis lists the actual possibilities clearly. First. Jesus may have been insane. He may have been suffering from despotism, you know, a dictator, a tyrant. Hitler suffered from despotism. And they say Napoleon probably did too. But was Jesus like them? And before we jump too quickly on that bandwagon at that explanation... We need to ask whether or not the total character of Jesus as we know it supports that opinion. And we know it doesn't. Did Jesus act like a person who was crazy? No. Did he speak like somebody who was suffering from from despotism? No. When reading the Gospels, we we see instead of being a madman that Jesus was actually the sanest man who ever lived. He spoke with quiet authority. Jesus was in control of every kind of situation. So he won't fit that that class first of being a, a, a despot. The second possibility is that Jesus was a deceiver. 
that he set out to intentionally fool people. And before we settle on that idea and believe that's what he was, a a deceiver, we need to look at the facts. We need to examine what is involved in it. In the first place, if Jesus was a deceiver, he was the best deceiver who ever lived. Jesus claimed to be God. But that claim, he didn't make that claim in, 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 a, in a Greek or Roman environment where the idea of many gods or even half gods were acceptable. Would have probably been all right. It was made at the very heart of believing in one God, Judaism. And the Jews were ridiculed, even persecuted, because they only believed in one God. But they stuck to their conviction faithfully that there was one true living God. In that environment, Jesus made his claims. And the amazing thing is that he convinced people to believe in him. Lots of people, men and women, peasants, educated people, priests, rulers, eventually even members of his own family. On the other hand, if Jesus was a deceiver and he wasn't God, he should be judged as a devil. Because he didn't just say, I am God, and let it go at that. He said, I am God, and I have come to save humanity. I am the way of salvation. Trust me with your eternal destiny. Jesus taught God is holy, that we are separated from him because of our sins, and that he came to be our sin bearer. That's good news. Great news. But only if it's true. If it's not true, then his followers are all human beings, the most miserable, Paul said, and Jesus should be hated as a devil from hell. If it's not true, Jesus sent generations of gullible followers to a hopeless eternity. Is he a deceiver? Is that the explanation that we have for the one who was known for being meek and lowly? Who became a poor, wandering evangelist in order to help? the poor and and teach those who uh, teach those who uh, others despised when you look at it the fact that the facts don't fit that he was a deceiver we cannot face the facts of his teaching and still call jesus a deceiver so what now what then if he wasn't a deceiver or he and he wasn't insane there's only one possibility that's left Jesus is who he said he is. He is the one in the Gospels, including Matthew, who he proclaimed him to be. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you do, then now is the time to turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ for your salvation and follow him. The facts are out. The facts are, are, are easy to look at and, and to make a decision. And that's what we need to do. So let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Father, we... So many people have so many strange ideas about Jesus, Lord. And yet it's easy to, to, to see. It's easy to examine. 
to examine him, his person, the claims that he made. And Father, if again, if we have any doubts, Lord, the word of God is where we look and to trust the word of God by faith. Because Jesus is who he said he is. And we've seen it. He's proved it, Lord. And if you're here this morning and you haven't made that decision for Christ, it's a must-do thing. Not to wait, not to put it off. The facts are in. And that's to ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. To confess your sins to him. And to receive him as your Lord and Savior. To trust him by faith in all things. To be filled with his spirit. Seek his word. Walk with him. Learn of him. Grow in him. Make him your your father, your son, your spirit, the three in one. And Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for leaving us your word, Lord. Most of all, God, for saving our souls. Father, we thank you and and we pray now, God, that you bless our time in communion, communion with Pastor Tony. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.